grants and scholarships on the web at maincf.org. It's 9.59 and you are tuned to WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 102.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with host Ron Beard is up next. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio, and you who are listening, create a dialogue that we hope will be a benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. And this morning, our topic is a question of a gender divide in Maine classrooms. After more than a decade of helping girls succeed, have we left the boys behind? And really, can we create classrooms that help both? So this morning, we're joined in the studio with uh, two guests who can help us um, with that question. Um, Craig Kesselheim is here with the Great Schools Partnership. Welcome to you, Craig. Thanks, Ron. And uh, with us also is Troy Wagstaff. Troy is the Director of Guidance at Hamden Academy. Welcome to you, Troy. Good morning, Ron. And by phone, we have uh, Georgia Nigro of Bates College. Uh, welcome to you, Georgia. Hello. And glad to have you with us on uh, Talk of the Towns. And um, if she isn't on the line um, right now, uh, I think we have Lane Gregory, of, who's Executive Director of Boys to Men. Welcome to you, Lane. Thanks, Ron. I'm here. Great. Thanks to all of you for being with us as, as we talk about the gender divide in Maine schools um, and explore its dimensions. First of all, each of you, um, I'll ask each of you to give a little background um, in the order I introduce you um, to help listeners understand um, where um, you work and, and how you relate to this uh, issue of a possible gender divide. Um, start, starting with Craig Kesselheim. Greg, again, you're with the Great Schools Partnership. Give us a little bit of the, your, your background. Good morning, Ron. I'm, I'm a career educator. I've cut my teeth in uh, public school classrooms uh, teaching middle school science. I've also been a, um, a school administrator. I was a, a K-8 principal uh, mm -hmm. in a town on uh, Mount Desert Island and um, have been a K-12 uh, curriculum coordinator. And I currently work with a great schools partnership. I've been with them for five years. We're a, um, a nonprofit that um, was originally uh, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to um, uh, uh, transform high schools in the state of Maine. And uh, currently, and we were closely partnered with the Mitchell Institute in Portland. And uh, currently, we are um, still very. Um, very close to um, both philosophically and, and physically to the Mitchell Institute in Portland, but we are uh, now an independent nonprofit. Continue to work throughout um, schools of Maine, uh, as well as uh, across the border in a few other regions of the country now. Great. We'll talk a little bit more about that in, in a moment. Um, Troy, give us a, a thumbnail sketch of, of Hamden Academy as an institution and, and uh, your role there. Well, Hamden Academy serves uh, three communities, Hamden, Newburgh, and Winterport. Our enrollment right now is about 750 students. Um, my background is I went to school in Oregon, actually, and worked out there for five years as a guidance counselor before coming back to Maine mm. um, and taking the job as director up in Hamden. Uh, prior to that, I worked for four years for different mental health agencies, uh, psychiatric inpatient hospitals with um, boys and girls with uh, uh, certain special needs. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, let's go to Georgia Nigro at Bates College. Uh, Georgia, a little bit of your background. You're with the Department of Psychology there at Bates College. Yes, I've been with the Department of Psychology for the past 25 years, and I'm a cognitive developmental psychologist. Uh, so and what I, does that mean, please? Uh, <laughs> uh, that means I study uh, the development of cognitive skills, such as thinking, uh, reading, decision-making, and the like. Uh, and I study those things in a developmental fashion as opposed to studying uh, those processes in adults. Uh -huh. uh, I came to this issue from a, a long-standing concern and interest in, in boys. Uh, first, that first became evident to me some years ago when I was collaborating with 
local educators in the Lewiston-Auburn area, and we were using an instrument that had been develop developed at the University of Maine, the Center for Student Aspirations. And uh, that instrument was given to many, many children in the local area, and I noticed over a decade ago that about 25% of the boys looked completely disenfranchised hmm. uh, and, uh, on that instrument. So I've been interested in this issue for a long time and delighted to finally get a chance to explore it more fully. Great. And Lane Gregory, you're the executive director of Boys to Men. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, Boys to Men and, and your role there. I'll be happy to. Um, Boys to Men is a nonprofit that's based in Portland, although we provide programming across the state, and essentially we are in existence to support the healthy development of adolescent boys, and we have at our core a strong commitment to uh, gender, uh, understanding the way in which gender, uh, masculinity is defined for boys, um, violence prevention, and uh, really looking at what promotes their health. And we've been in um, sort of established since 1998 originally as a community coalition to try to um, create a project or a program that would begin to um, support the nonviolent development of boys. And we started by doing an annual statewide conference, the Boys to Men Conference. Ran it for about four years from 2000 to 2004. And then in 2004, um, became a much more uh, full-fledged organization, uh, got our 501c3, and have been uh, expanding and providing programs since then. And, and Lane, what, what led to the, the, kind of the first impetus to create a conference? Um, what kinds of conversations were people having um, that led to, the, to the, uh, you to discover the need or, or realize the need for um, attention to boys' development? Sure. Um, and there's been a lot of concern about uh, interpersonal violence for a number of decades. And there are, in fact, in Maine, many wonderful you know, public sector and nonprofit sector organizations and projects that have been trying to address it and making very, very diligent efforts. However, there are very few what we describe as primary prevention um, projects going on to support or to address or prevent interpersonal violence. And I was part of, was working for the public health department in Portland at the time, and there were a number of professionals that were working on doing some outreach to men who were battering or currently battering to try to prevent violence. But we decided that that really wasn't where the work needed to be, that we wanted to stop violence before it started. And we did uh, some a fairly lengthy literature review, um, began uh, sort of scanning the Internet for programs that were doing primary prevention and interpersonal violence around the country and found that really the best way to prevent violence is to support the nonviolent development of boys. And um, that was sort of where we started, and we thought that we wanted to give boys, since violence is something that tends to be taught or, or in their case, learned, we wanted to begin to provide some educational programming that gave them some alternative images and messages about what it means to be male mm -hmm. and offer them a broader spectrum of basically being human in the world than what the culture and media um, and traditional definitions of masculinity offer them. So that was sort of where we started, and we've expanded in a variety of ways, uh, one of which is the Main Boys Network, which I'm sure we'll talk about um, which is about supporting the academic achievement of boys and young men in Maine. Mm. And Georgia, that seems to tie into to your um, sense that something might not be working when you use this uh, assessment tool early on. Bring us um, kind of into, into that, um, that work as well. The new work? Well, no, I meant the, um, tell us a little bit more about what you found when you realized that boys weren't engaged by um, this particular instrument. What was going on for those boys? Oh, that instrument focused a great deal on what was going on in classrooms. Mm. Uh, it asked questions about um, teachers, and uh, in general about teachers. Do teachers understand you? Do they uh, listen to your point of view? And so on. And so on question after question, uh, 
uh, there was a marked difference between the boys and the girls. I mean, the average difference was great, and when we looked closely, it seemed to be about 25% of the boys who were just off the scale as far as all these questions about their school and their sense of belonging to that school, their sense of uh, belonging in classrooms uh, went just across the board. They were disenfranchised. When I spoke to Russ Qualia, who was then the head of the Center for Student Aspirations at the University of Maine, Orono, and asked him, what do you think's going on here? Look what we found here in Lewiston-Auburn. He said, oh, we're finding that across the board. Mm. So this difference was starting to emerge even here in, in Maine years ago on instruments that were designed for other purposes. But because we can record gender, we would always look at it. And there it was. Mm. So then um, bring us up to date, if you would, um, because you were um, one of the um, principal investigators in the, in the current study, the study that's just been, the re results have just been released um, called The Gender Divide. So tell us a little bit about how you developed um, that, that project. Well, that project was developed in collaboration with the entire Maine Boys Network. Uh, so that included um, uh, some educators from higher ed, but educators from K through 12 as well. Uh, and we came together and decided to use focus group methodology as a way to talk to a lot of boys. Not because focus groups get you better data necessarily, but because people find them more engaging, and mm. young people especially find them more engaging. Uh, they, they'll argue with each other. They'll confront each other. They'll say all sorts of things in front of one another uh, that they might not say if they were face-to-face -face with an adult interviewer. Mm. And so we uh, developed 10 questions, and we developed those collaboratively, went over and over and over them, uh, 10 questions that we were to ask the boys, and we created age-appropriate versions of the questions. So we had uh, elementary age boys in our sample, we had middle school boys, high school boys, and college men as well. And so we had four versions of our 10 questions, and we conducted 72 focus groups across the state in 14 of the 16 counties in Maine, uh, usually with two moderators for the focus groups, one who asked the questions and one who, who took notes as well as operated whatever technology we brought, which was usually a little uh, digital recorder so we could record the conversations. The conversations lasted anywhere from one to two hours, uh, depending on the moderators. Lane was a, a very good moderator and often had the boys talking for hours. <laughs> and uh, I think they had to be dragooned back to their classrooms. They wanted to stay and talk with her. Uh, she can even tell you about one group who said, can we do this all over again as soon as it was <laughs> over? So the boys really enjoyed these conversations that they had with us. Lane, what do you remember about some of those uh, focus groups? Oh, well, I mean, Georgia's doing a great job describing it. I think the thing that was um, surprising and not surprising is uh, how excited uh, the boys were for just even being asked about their experience in school. And excitement doesn't actually quite capture it. I guess they just felt um, valued. And once they realized that we weren't sort of part of the school and that we were really there to find out what their experiences were and to describe their relationships and what they liked and didn't like about school. Um, the boys would just talk and talk and talk. And um, one of the things I think that was so striking is how often they said that nobody asks them about mm. this. And so um, it was just so easy to do. And as Georgia said, you know, the boys not only wanted to keep talking, but they would often then say, you know, what are you going to do with this information? Is this going to change my school? Are you going to be able to make it different for us? And, and we would say, well, that's, that's our intention, and that's what we hope, and we will be giving this information back, obviously de-identified to the school about you know, the important things that you've been telling us. Mm, and we'll get to that later in the program, yeah. what some of the implications are. Um, but it seems like what you did by choosing the focus group method was really to honor um, the importance of, of listening as, as if, an intervention. If I, if I could just add, yes. too, that really our decision, the Maine Boys Network's decision to, to embark on this project, in large part stemmed from the fact that there's a huge discussion, debate, 
nationally, internationally, about boys falling behind in school. And there are a lot of theories about why that's happening. And oftentimes the theories come in the uh, form of blame. The schools are uh, the culprits, the feminists are the culprits, uh, parents aren't doing their job. And what really sort of scared us in the face is that no one was including boys in this conversation. Right. And so that was really what sparked our interest in doing this focus group, was trying to add their voices to the conversation, not only here in Maine, but um, across the country. Mm. And there is a part of the backdrop also is um, the attention that we, um, as, a, as a society, began to give girls at, at one point in our, in our kind of uh, journey. Mm-hmm. And um, so talk a little bit about that, if e- either of you, uh, Georgia or, or Lane, talk a little bit about that, um, kind of the dance that was going on between supporting girls and then finding we also need to support boys. Georgia, do you want to start? Oh, go ahead, Lane. Um, well, I guess I think Georgia probably knows a little bit more about some of the data and things like that. I think what's really important to um, sort of bracket this conversation with is that we have gotten and good and much better at supporting the unique gender needs of girls, and that is so incredibly important. And we don't want to do anything that diminishes that. In fact, what we're saying is that we need to keep doing that for girls even more, but we have to be doing the same thing for boys. And we have to really sit down and understand what do they need. And we believe that many of their needs are very similar to girls, and then some of them are also unique. Mm. Georgia, some perspective on that? I I think Lane covered it. I mean, I was uh, teaching psychology and teaching in our women's studies program here at Bates uh, when many of the research studies about girls first started coming out, uh, what the classroom climate was like for girls. And many of us on the faculty here at Bates began to examine our own classrooms, who was raising their hand, who was getting called on, uh, who did most of the talking, et cetera. And we were all, uh, how should I say, uh, shocked to discover that what the research literature suggested was happening in uh, high school, middle school, and elementary classrooms was also happening in our classrooms right. as well. And so we we took steps as well to try to change the, the climate in our classrooms for girls. And, and we largely succeeded, although there are still days when I see the same pattern emerge in sure. my classrooms. Yeah. You're, I just want to remind listeners that they're tuned to WERU. We're um, here on Talk of the Towns, uh, speaking about the possible gender divide in Maine schools. And on the line, uh, phone line with us are Georgia Nigro, who is with the Department of Psychology at Bates College, and Lane Gregory, Executive Director of Boys to Men. Here in the studio, we have Craig Kesselheim of the Great Schools Partnership and Troy Rag- Wagstaff of the uh, Hamden Academy. He's the Director of Guidance there. And uh, later on, we'll be taking your phone calls as well. Um, well, Georgia and and Lane, what were some of the results, uh, starting with you, Georgia, what were some of the results of the study um, that uh, you've just released? Well, let me tell you the form that the results yes, yes. come in. Uh, we analyzed the results uh, using what some would call a consensus method. Um, the data are qualitative because they're words, and so what we we're really looking for um, by a process of consensus was major themes. And so we did that by first identifying all the repeating ideas that happened in the, in the groups. And we then grouped those repeating ideas into uh, themes and sub-themes. And we came up with four uh, major themes and then many, many sub-themes and repeating ideas within them. So let me tell you what the four big ones were, and we can then dig into each one as, Great. as you wish. So we, we had one theme around how boys and young men understand the purpose of school. We had another around what keeps boys and young men committed to school. And a third had to do with how boys and young men see school as different for students occupying different social positions, gender being the most important social position we were looking at in this study. But, but the boys and young men had things to say about race and class as well. Mm. So we made that a broad theme. And finally, what, a, what do boys and young men want of their school? So shall we? Yes, why don't we dig into that? What, uh, what, did, what did boys think the purpose of school um, was? Well, it was very interesting. <laughs> they all knew to say that school is all about their cognitive 
growth and development, their uh-huh. intellectual growth and development. They all knew to say that, but their real energy in the conversations was about how school is a, a socializing agent. School is, is where they meet up with their friends. School is where they're going to learn how to behave in the world, uh, in the world now and in the world later. And they had so much to say about that, even though the frequencies weren't necessarily as high as they were for cognitive School as a, a source mm-hmm. of yes. cognitive development, but they had a lot of energy for talking about school as a as a social environment, and it was very very striking. Friends, you know, so important to them. Uh, sense of community was important as well. Uh, unhappiness with cliques and stagnant social circles, um, and a dislike of bullying came up mostly among the younger boys. Mm. So let's move to the other one, because we, we do have a limited amount of time. Let's move to the, the second theme. What keeps boys committed to school? What did you learn? Well, it was clear that the supports are people, mm. you know, and those people were mainly educators. Because we were talking about school, uh, we weren't asking them questions about parents. Parents didn't come up as much. They came up. They're important, but it was teachers, 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 teachers. Uh, the caring behaviors of teachers meant a great deal boys. And they even said um, cla- a class was uh, wonderful if there was a great teacher, even if they didn't like the subject. Uh-huh. Yes. yes. So that, that engagement, um, the, the relationship that a student has, a, a boy has with a teacher is, is all important to keep those, those boys committed to the process of school. Right. Right. Now, the obstacles were broader, though. The obstacles to staying committed to school were broader than just people. Um, we, we called one set of obstacles the regulatory actions of schools, and there were many, many that boys talked about. Um, tests, disciplinary systems, grading systems, homework that has to be completed without the support of their teachers. Mm. For many boys, that was very stressful uh, and was an obstacle to staying committed. Um, meanness and insensitivity on the part of teachers uh, was an obstacle. Uh, if what they thought was irrelevant or useless information uh, was an obstacle as well. So if they couldn't relate what they were, were um, being taught to something in their lives, that created some, some barriers. Yes, and, and this doesn't necessarily mean that, that teachers need to go far with this. Mm-hmm. There were some very simple examples, like a young... A boy who said to me, well, I hope to do lobstering the way Mm -hmm. my father and my uncles do. So why do I need to learn science? And and I said, oh, but what about the ocean? Mm -hmm. Don't you want to know about the health of the ocean? And you you can see little little sparks going off. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, Mm -hmm. I can see. Just simple connections that some of them just weren't getting. Great. Let's move on to the third theme, if we could. Uh, What do boys see as different for students with different social positions? Well, they noticed gender. Mm-hmm. Gender was huge. Uh, they saw that girls got treated differently in school, and they also saw that, that that different treatment came because girls behaved differently. They acknowledged that girls often complied with teachers, were nicer, did their homework, were more engaged. They acknowledged all of that and said, of course the teachers like them better <laughs> because they behave better than we do. Uh-huh. Um, but they also saw differential treatment that they thought was unfair, and that really bothered them. Mm. They it was unfair. They thought that they were scrutinized. Their behavior was scrutinized uh, far more assiduously than girls. So if they transgressed in some way, they were punished, but girls could get away with the same transgression. Mm. Mm. And more than that, there was an, another piece that uh, the older boys talked about uh, girls getting different treatment because they're attractive to male teachers. And so they were watching those sorts of behaviors, learning from those sorts of behaviors, uh, and not, not always pleased with what they saw and um, uh, judged it as unfair and, and perhaps worse, you know, learn things that we don't want them to learn. Right, and, and if, if they know that the purpose of school or they believe the purpose of school is to, is to um, learn about uh, behavior... Um, and they're mm-hmm. seeing behavior that isn't right. serving them well or serving society well, they have a right to question that. Yes, yeah. they do. The, the fourth theme, what do boys want of schools? What did you find in that uh, theme? Well, even though some teachers have reacted negatively to this word, the word that came up was freedom. 
Mm. Uh, first and foremost, uh, freedom from uh, an atmosphere they found oppressive in terms of those regulations that I spoke about before. You know, some freedom to go outside once in a while, to have a little more choice in classes, you know, some freedom to choose their classes, freedom to use computers in the case of the laptop program. I, I guess the teachers can, can link to students' laptops, and, and students found that oppressive mm-hmm. and wanted more freedom in that regard. Freedom from racism. We did have, we did sample intentionally some groups of uh, boys of color, and those boys spoke about racism. Freedom to experiment, just to do, do a little more. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also talked about a curriculum, wanting a curriculum that's more adaptive. And <clears throat> excuse me. By that they meant adaptive to their own learning style, whatever it is. Uh, they wanted it to be hands-on and more physical mm. as well. And that's important because we know schools are eliminating, eliminating recess for the younger boys, and as, as the boys get older, recess is, is not a part of the school day anyway. Right. Um, I'll, I'll bring Lane into the conversation if I could. Lane, um, any other thoughts that you want to uh, provide in terms of the results of, of this study? Um, I, I think that... Some of the results have um, been outside of just what we've learned about boys' experiences in school, and that is that, um, by and large, the schools that we, where we did the focus groups were really interested in the information that we gathered. And we have uh, sent back the themes to each school that participated, and then we sent out a questionnaire asking them, you know, how have you used this? Have you used it? What Was there anything that was helpful? If so, what was helpful? And the schools that responded, um, which was about 20%, said that they found uh, the information to be incredibly useful, that they have uh, shared it with all of the faculty and staff at the schools, and that there have been organized conversations about, you know, how can we respond to what our boys are saying. And one of the things that I found really encouraging and is one of our recommendations at the end of the report, one of, of several, is that we really encourage these schools to do their own focus groups, mm. um, not only with boys but with girls, just to, again, talk to your customers um, <laughs> to find out what's working for them and what's not. And um, about um, 80% of the schools that responded to this survey have begun uh, forming their own focus groups and talking to kids more. So mm. that's been a really wonderful outcome. So and not I, only are there specific results, but there's a process kind of result that, that you're seeing. Um, this might lead to better conversations between students and, and schools. Yeah, absolutely. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, um, I'm going to let each of you go. Um, I know Georgia has a class to teach. Uh, uh, Georgia, um, any, any concluding remarks from, from you? Okay. So, thank you. Well, thanks so much for being with us. Can here I, to talk can about I add a and, concluding and remark? And Lane, on? I'm going to come to you. Yes. Oh, great. Good. Um, <laughs> the, the Maine Boys Network uh, is a coalition of folks who are really invested in supporting the academic achievement of boys and young men across the state. And if we are actually, we've got so many requests for membership that we are going to be expanding this in some way to include more folks than just the 12 or so of us that have been doing this work for three years. And um, if anybody is interested in finding out more information about the the Maine Boys Network, what we offer, or perhaps entertaining the idea of joining us in some capacity, they should uh, go to the um, email me at boystomen um, at maine.rr.com. And boys to men, is that spelled? B-O-I-S-T-O-M-E-N. Okay, great, boys to men. Well, thanks to both of you for being with us on Talk of the Towns this morning. Thanks for your interest. Great. That was Lane Gregory, Executive Director of Boys to Men, and Georgia Nigro of Bates College. At, uh, she was She's in the Department of Psychology there, and they helped frame the question of um, a gender divide in Maine schools. You're tuned to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. And now for the second half of the show, we'll invite you to participate by phone. You can give us a call at one 625 
1-866-625-9378. That's 1-866-625-9378. Or if you're calling locally here in the WERU studio area, that number is 469-0500. And we understand there might be some new listeners because WERU has expanded its um, signal to the north and west. So welcome to you who might be listening to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. In the studio with us, we have uh, Troy Wagstaff. Troy is the Director of Guidance at Hamden Academy and Craig Kesselheim of the Great Schools Partnership. And and both of you um, both have read the report, participated. Craig, you were actually part of the interview um, team um, going out and helping with these focus groups. Any, um, what did you remember about some of those focus groups? Well, um, it was it was a privilege to be able to just um, pitch some questions at small groups of um, boys and young men and, and hear what they had to say. And I think um, once they got over some initial discomfort at you know um, talking openly, um, they they were quite honest and revealing about um, their perceptions of of um, schooling day to day and and uh, overall. And um, one interview that ended. I was thanking the boys and talking about the project in in a broad sense, and uh, one of them said, so now what? And that quote has stayed with me as long as any of the specific data have. Uh, And that he was was truly asking, you know, can you do anything about or or with the information that we provided you? And so I think... um, And what did you sell him? (laughs) Well, I started out pretty lamely. I said, you know, school change happens slowly, you know, and and, uh, that kind of thing. And and I said, but on the other hand, I pledge to you that I will get these data back to your school in mm-hmm. a way that respects the the adults in the building as well as your opinions so um, you know we won't uh, we'll, we'll make sure there aren't any identifiers in here but there are some some broad uh, and very uh, targeted pieces of, of information that you can provide this school that um, the adults in the building may not have heard mm-hmm. uh, so I uh, we were we have been doing that uh, mm. uh, in as many schools as possible um, so that was it was uh, it was very revealing, and I think schools did a very good job, as did the uh, researchers, at getting a representative sample of boys. These were uh, students who spanned all the grades in the building and who spanned all kinds of achievement histories and family backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I I felt very uh, uh, very trusting of the kind of information that that I got, and as well uh, in the whole that the data that the uh, method was able to glean. Mm. So it sounds like, again, the purpose of the study was in some ways to identify what was going on, but in addition to listening very closely to boys and young men, you promised to do something with that information, and we'll come back to that. But we do have a call. Um, You can participate as well if you'd like to give us a call at 1-866-625-9378. You can participate as well, but we do have a, a phone call. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. Uh, hello. Yes. My name is uh, Richard Angel. Uh, our little boy was in first grade last year. He started first grade uh, in September, and he was a young first grader. Birthday's in August. And uh, <clears throat> uh, on the first day of first grade, a child who never had a history of violence, so far as we knew, uh, walked up to the first boy in the row, stepped on his foot, and the, the principal was called in. The principal proceeded to take her little boy by the shoulder, uh, where he'd never been used to being treated, and marched into the principal's office. And that began a, a very long process, uh, which involved convening a nine-person panel to decide whether our little boy was uh, uh, HD. What is it again? <laughs> yeah. ADHD, is that the initials you're thinking of? Thank you very much. Yep. And turned out he wasn't uh, after nine-person panel examined his, his psychologically and mentally. Turned out he has a, <clears throat> a, a very high IQ. Uh, and uh, there's a special skill that I became aware of, mental skill, when he was four. I was sitting beside him while he was watching... Um, uh, SpongeBob SquarePants, and I noticed he was reciting every word of SpongeBob SquarePants along with the, the voiceovers in the cartoon. And I thought, mm, well, probably, you know, kids they watch everything a million times. But he's probably watched this a million times. 
That's good. I just let it go. Then a year and a half ago, I happened to notice again that he was blinded. And uh, I knew for a fact that this was the first SpongeBob episode he'd seen because of what was one of those premiere episodes. And we recorded it. We played it back, and he was mouthing every word along with all the voiceovers. Uh, <clears throat> then, back to the first grade, uh, they finally gave him a, a diagnosis that we call odd. Uh, you know, uh, uh, please, what what is the acronym stands for again? Uh, uh, you're talking about oppositional defiant disorder? It's oppositional defiant disorder. Yeah. But we talked to him in depth at home, of course. And we asked him, you know, you, you've never done this before. Why did you do it? And finally, after two weeks, he confessed to us, I loved my kindergarten teacher, and I really was hoping I could be kept back to kindergarten. Like that other little boy that got kept back. Mm. And uh, I, so we started arranging for him to meet with her privately with my wife, and he does adore her, and vice versa, and he's especially productive when he's around her, and so it turned out that I had majored in cognitive development as an undergraduate, a graduate, and a postdoc, and I thought, well, it's finally time for me to stop working and uh, do something for our little boy here. Because he got to be, he was completely isolated after his diagnosis. He was kept in the back of the room. Uh, he was only allowed to go to school for two days a week. My wife was still supporting, you know, uh, uh, temporarily uh, their their program, their plan for him. But when he came to her and said, Mommy, none of the children in the class like me. Uh, they don't treat me very well. That was it for her too. So, sir, could you could you um, is, have you got a question or? Um, I, I do. Yes. So I decided to homeschool him. Something I never thought was prior was probably a good idea because of the socialization issues. Uh, and he's been flourishing, academically flourishing. Uh, pro- but the problem still is. A social environment, so we placed an afternoon at the at the Y in their program from four to sixties with other children. And we don't think, however, that that's optimal. Where do we go from here? Great. So thanks for your question, and we'll see if we can get some response. Where does someone go um, when um, a, a child is having that kind of difficulty? How do you how do you um, support that child? Well, schools have uh, a number of structures, and uh, they, they uh, are unique in some cases to uh, a given school. There are or, um, committees or teams called uh, student assistance teams that um, will work hard to identify uh, children that are struggling to succeed, and they, it could be academic or social or both, uh, and it could happen, uh, obviously, at any at any time. Uh, it sounds like this one is, is at least partly related to, uh, um, you know, losing a cherished relationship from one teacher to another and maybe just uh, struggling with a transition, although um, I'm not qualified to, to do the diagnosis here, but uh, that it's sort of my, my informal take on it. And I think schools work very hard to, um, uh, you know, w- within their limited resources to work with, with families and, uh, and to find um, kind of uh, human solutions, whether it be, uh, you know, some occasional quality time with that former teacher uh, or other kinds of um, uh, classroom strategies uh, that work. And, and quite often, uh, you know, for better and for worse, it's a trial and error process. Mm. You know, we, we, use, um, we use the information that we can observe and gather uh, from all kinds of sources to see whether it, it seems to be succeeding. And uh, we sometimes take a couple of steps forward and one step back and, and uh, keep at it. Mm. Troy, anything that you'd add? Well, I would, I'd echo what Craig said, but I'd also add, I think... Um, you know, one of the biggest challenges is, is meeting each kid's needs individually as they are, but also wanting to get them, you know, along with the rest of the group in a mainstream. And it sounds like that's what we're talking about here as a student who 
have certain things that they need to work on and, and they're getting some extra help, it sounds like the parents are really stepping up and, and saying, we're going to take this on as parents mm -hmm. and, and put in a lot of time and effort, which mm -hmm. is wonderful to, to hear about. Um, but there are also other resources. I think having the student um, involved in things after school, whether it's sports or band, you know, a lot of uh, parents who homeschool their students for different reasons are involved with that. Um, so the kids still have all the access to, to the social activities and the learning that goes with that, but also um, they have a lot more control over the structure of their, the academics and, and, and maybe behavioral support as well. So, mm -hmm. um, But I do think the ultimate goal uh, with this student is with all the students is to have them you know, at their own pace back in a place where they can be you know, in a classroom alongside their peers, you know, uh, learning you know, all the things that, that mm -hmm. Lane talked about. Right. Right. And coming back to that, um, as you began to absorb the results of, of the study and begin to look at those uh, four themes and the recommendations, um, what kind of conversations are you having uh, first, uh, Craig, in terms of the schools that you're working with? What kinds of conversations have, the, have, have that led to? Well, uh, first of all, I, th I think schools that have um, participated in the, um, in the research, but also schools that are consuming the, the report, are um, looking for ways to, number one, examine data from within. Um, these are, these are um, characteristics that uh, are gleaned and built from consensus over all these schools, and each of our schools uh, across the country would have a different um, aspect of concern based on um, uh, everything from student failure rates, which can be learned by looking at transcripts, um, you know, are, are boys or girls or any other subgroup of our school failing disproportionately? And if so, can we learn why mm. uh, or start to understand why? Um, and uh, finding ways to talk to students. And there are many ways to do that, um, such as focus groups. Uh, many schools uh, conduct exit interviews. You can have um, uh, very successful exit interviews with students who are leaving your school. They have less to lose, if you want to look at it that way, but they have a lot to say. Mm -hmm. they've, they've been in your program, and a lot of our K-8 schools here, they've been with you for nine years. Mm -hmm. um, and they, looking back, they can say what worked well for them and what didn't. Um, and that could be highly valuable to individual teachers and to the whole school. And uh, certainly you can have um, online surveys, which are very easy to uh, construct now. And, and uh, the uh, analyses of those data are um, automated to a, to a degree. And you can also have end-of-course surveys. So all of those, as well as looking at achievement data in a variety of slices, can um, can be very informative to a school. I know that at Lewiston High School, they now have an ongoing um, uh, committee that focuses on boys' issues. And um, it started with uh, the recognition that more, more girls were dropping into a college advising center than were boys. It was a very simple set of data that came from tally marks. Mm -hmm. And from there, uh, the school started to explore why is this happening and what might we learn you know, uh, uh, by engaging boys and, and in their case, some family members uh, in the community uh, in an ongoing effort to serve all students well. Mm. So the, the, the reaction then of a school or, or a teacher who might be reading this would be, I wonder what, what's in it for me. Um, is that reflective of my experience or the, the experience of my students? And if it is, um, then what do we do about that? Um, well, I think, um, uh, first of all, we need to... Uh, look at our own uh, our own practice mm -hmm. and our own beliefs um, we can uh, also have some some common conversations uh, around us uh, a staff um, there's a lot of uh, a lot of good literature out there now about about equity and about boys specifically um, there are ways that faculty can visit one another in their um, in their classrooms and uh, provide peer observations and support um, and uh, as I think Georgia was talking about, uh, starting to look at uh, faculty practice within the insti their institution at Bates College, um, look honestly at patterns of um, interaction with your own with your own students. Um, boys in some of the interviews that I conducted were saying that um, their even their own physical actions were creating were uh, raising red flags amongst teachers where the girls could do the same thing and and. Um, be assumed to be behaving well. A mm. uh, boy mentioned reaching into his pocket to get a pen, and the teacher uh, uh, was was immediately concerned that this was going to be a cell phone incident. Mm -hmm. Simple example, mm -hmm. uh, but that stems from uh, certainly past experience, but also about beliefs and assumptions. Mm -hmm. And I just I, to be to be uh, uh, open about this, I think it's um, it's important to say that um, 
teaching is an extremely talented challenging job. Um, uh, you have classrooms that are uh, large and diverse. Um, you have uh, behavior management issues that spring up of, of all kinds and stripes and uh, often very unpredictably. And it, we'd be hard-pressed to find a teacher in Maine who uh, comes to work wanting to be unfair. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, uh, right. we all want to do our best. And uh, it's, it uh, is uh, part of our work to, to continue to grow and be reflective. Uh, to uh, help uh, work with our colleagues to, you know, to help us um, conduct that growth and also, again, to learn from the data that our schools generate and, and uh, from listening to our own students as well as we can. You're tuned to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. Um, we're talking about the gender divide, um, as we've discovered, in Maine schools. And here in the studio with us, we have uh, Craig Kesselheim of the Great Schools Partnership, working with schools throughout Maine, and Troy Wagstaff, the Director of Guidance at Hamden Academy. Troy, um, what, what's been your reaction as you've read um, the results of this study? What are, you, what are you reflecting on? Well, a couple of different things. And, um, you know, one thing that kind of jumps out that, to, to add on to what Craig was saying is about the assumption piece. I think we have certain truths that we know about boys, mm. and one of which is, you know, might involve sports. Um, this boy is high energy, has had some behavioral issues, but if you can keep him in football, basketball, and baseball, um, he'll be hooked in and, and he'll continue. His grades will stay up and, and whatnot. And in some cases, that very well may be true, but what it sounds like a lot of the boys in this were saying is there's another layer to that, and the layer is that close connection with a, with a coach or, or one of the assistant coaches or whomever um, might mean that they stick with the sport, but also that they're feeling better about their involvement in the program and the involvement in, in school. Um, you know, there certainly is a social aspect being part of a team. You know, there's prestige that comes with that mm -hmm. and everything else. But also, these boys seem like they were pretty clear in some of their interviews that how well they connected with the coach was a key piece and how positive that experience was, and that translated over to how positively they viewed school. Um, Another, you know, again, an assumption, I'll, I can't speak for anyone else, but that I had was um, boys like to stay busy in a classroom. You know, I did a behavioral group for a few years at a high school in Oregon that I worked at, and out there they had 95-minute blocks. So if anybody isn't familiar with that, it means that for 95 minutes, these kids were in one classroom studying one subject. Um, most of the boys I worked with were ninth and 10th graders, and the theme every time I did the group was, when we get into trouble, it's always during the last... 42 minutes of class. It's never during the first half of class. And so, you know, an immediate assumption from that is, well, okay, well, if they were up and busy and moving around, they'd have a better experience. But again, with these boys, they took a, a, you know, a layer deeper and said, well, actually, we need to be doing something meaningful. Um, just, the, you know, just because we're playing with crayons, as they talked about, or doing whatever, and we're moving, um, if we don't see any value and we don't feel like we're learning biology, you know, we're just coloring in frogs, um, we're still going to tune out and we're still going to act up. Mm -hmm. So things like that, and then just to, uh, something else you know, Craig mentioned that resonated with me is how hard it is for teachers in a classroom of 20 or 30 students to, to do you know, something that meets the needs of every single student in the class. But you know, another thing we learned from this and from a lot of other data that we look at is that you know, the kids will often tell us um, what they need. And I think there has to be a willingness to confront um, uncomfortable truths, as they say, about your school. And, um, again, an you know, example might be that some of the boys were clear about how they felt attractive girls were treated by male teachers. That's something really difficult to talk about. However, if you're in a school and the boys are saying that at least that's their perception, then that's certainly something that it may be uncomfortable. You need to bring up and say this is how these boys are, are feeling they're treated because of mm -hmm. uh, differently from you mm -hmm. know, girls that they view as being attractive and they feel like male teachers are treating them differently and that may be a teeny bit true or not true at all, but mm -hmm. the kids are coming in and feeling uncomfortable in classrooms as a result, so we have to address it somehow. Mm. I, think a, I think a school that is um, aware can be a school that is always looking for opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, I was at a, a very different um, meeting yesterday of uh, school nutrition directors uh, in Hancock uh, County, and there was a um, school nutrition director from uh, one of the Mount Desert Island towns who talked about eighth grade boys who were kind of often in trouble who decided for whatever reason to hang out in the in the school kitchen area when they had a chance to. And they started to kind of pass the time of day and say what's for lunch and all that. And before long, they were asking, can I help? And uh, three years later, there is now a culinary arts club that started from these boys' interests. And um, it is uh, co-ed. It's 6th, 7th, and 8th grade. Um, and it now involves arriving at 6.30 for some of them, um, boombox music that the director of nutrition probably would never have listened to, but, um, you know, she's open to that. And so relationships can happen in and out 
in, inside and outside of the classroom, but I think a school that is aware is a school that can be ready uh, and responsive to opportunities like that. Mm. And if time permits, I do have a few suggestions for what uh, might might be happening differently in classrooms. But Great. Let me just list our phone number in case there's another question or comment uh, from our listeners as we talk about the gender divide in Maine schools. one 866 625-9378. That's toll-free, 1-866-625-9378. We're talking about the gender divide in, in main schools. And, and uh, Craig, what are some of the things that you could begin to think about in a classroom that might address the, the, uh, the issues that this um, study um, brought out? Well, um, there are some recommendations that are in the report itself, and I think it might be helpful uh, to mention that that the report can be op- uh, located as a PDF um, uh, at uh, the Great Schools Partnership website, which is greatschoolspartnership.org. And um, so uh, I, I would also, I've sort of paraphrased some mm. uh, uh, and tailored them to some, some options that might um, work in a, in a variety of classroom settings. One is to not forget that um, uh, boys want to be challenged just like you know the majority of all students. They don't mind being challenged. In fact, that they're, by providing a rigorous and high expectations classroom, we're keeping kids on their toes. Um, so let's not assume that outward appearances or apparent attitudes um, translate always into, um, you know, I don't feel like working and, and don't, mm-hmm. don't make me, uh, you know, don't make me uh, uh, work, work harder. So uh, rigor, I think, is, is important, but also uh, choice and flexibility. Um, it can be, and there have been a number of um, advocates who speak about um, English classes uh, as a focal point here. Uh, choice in literature is um, sometimes uh, a very helpful um, change in classroom practice for a teacher. Uh, in addition to the books of teacher's preference, um, search for books that would um, be of interest to everybody in your class that um, relate stories or even nonfiction that boys uh, or minorities or other, you know, just subgroups within your class can relate to. And similarly, find ways to um, to get students writing about things they know and are passionate about in addition to those things that the teacher is passionate about. Mm. Um, it's not necessarily an exclusive, exclusive um, uh, guideline here, but choice can can be really noted and appreciated by students. And that relates to that issue of freedom, doesn't it? It that, does. That the boys brought up. It is another word for freedom, right? Yeah. yeah. Troy, what's your take on some of these suggestions? Is, is that something that you could envision happening in, in, at Hamden Academy and, and elsewhere? Yeah, and I think, um, to come, again, to come back to Craig's point before, I think the key is with with teachers having so many duties in the classroom just to deliver, you know, um, the instruction and grading and all that, um, when you look at, okay, what changes can we make, they need to be, you know, simple is not the right word, but they need to be not a big thing, right? right. <laughs> something, you know, um, you know, something small that they can do. And so, you know, for example, yeah, adding a few other books that might be more of interest to certain other kids is a great example of that. Um, you know, we talked about, you know, with, with the mentor role, you know, initiating a conversation with a student about what might be a shared interest, you know, mm-hmm. versus um, we have a lot of programs in different schools where mentors are, are put into place simply because they have the student for four years or they've mm-hmm. had them twice or whatever. When it sounds like what these boys were clearly saying is that if it's... Connect me with somebody. Connect who's me with someone who's interested in NASCAR like I right, am. Um, right. And if you do that, then I'm going to really hook in with them, especially if the teacher says, hey, I'm into NASCAR you're wearing a NASCAR, a Dale Earnhardt hat, so right. let's connect around that. And right. that, to me, seems like something that's very doable during lunchtime or first thing in the morning. Um, right. We have another call. Let's go ahead and take that call. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. Yeah, hi. Uh, I'm a parent. My kids are grown. They went to uh, public schools. And uh, I don't have any answers, and I think <laughs> a lot of what you're saying is really interesting because got boys... And girls do, I believe, get treated differently. And uh, But something that I don't know how you can relate it to the gender issue, I'm sure you can, that amazes me is that the school system is an institutional structure and there's a lot of money involved. And uh, you have a lot of well-meaning people working inside the system looking to benefit the youth Yet, an awful lot of school systems have 
both armed and unarmed police in the schools, and I really don't see how that's a benefit to anybody. And if I personally believe that if teachers were going to do anything, they should, like, go on strike until law enforcement is out of our schools. Uh, and it, to me, it doesn't matter what the reason is that they say they're there. If the society is in such a mess that we need law enforcement in the school and armed law enforcement, uh, I think we ought to show our strength and our faith in our children by getting them out and mm -hmm. saying we'll handle this in another way. And the school is only a fraction of the kid's time, even though it's a good percentage. And a lot of what guys and gals get, modern ones anyway, who watch TV about their gender roles in this country comes from all the violence and mm. nonsense on TV. And you get so many hours a day to kind of counter that in any way. So as you, as you thought about your own um, children's education, do you, did you see some of the patterns we've been talking about this morning on Talk of the Towns? You see some of the patterns in terms of, of, of girls and boys being treated differently? Uh, no, no, I can't say I didn't, because when my daughter or son got themselves would, uh, you know, doing things that they weren't supposed to be doing, they <laughs> sort of got treated okay. uh, equally. Yep. It, it was just, uh, in the general overall picture, I think women as a whole, it's changing now, women are able to grow up, girls are able to grow up without this thing that carries with the males that they need they need to learn violence. Mm, this yes. is a very violent country, and yes. I happen to be a disabled veteran, but it's it is amazing to me that we're not very good at dealing with the people who return from war, and we're not very good at uh, stopping it. And uh, young men, children, uh, being fed this whole routine right from the beginning. And uh, I th uh, not, every, not every woman, but a lot of women kind of have this idea, well, well, we won't ever have to do that. Mm. And I've, got to, I've got to cut you off because we're yeah. almost at the end of the show here. Okay. So thanks very much for your call. Yeah. This caller has really brought it full circle because Lane Gregory talked in Boys to Men. The origins of Boys to Men was to try to figure out how to deal with this violent culture. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways to do that was to provide some nonviolent um, models. And, and it's interesting to see that, that, that theme return. Um, resources, uh, Troy, what, what would you um, urge listeners to think about in terms of resources that they might uh, pick up? And then we'll ask Craig the same question. Um. Where do they go in terms of, of schools? Do they do they get help within their schools? Is a, is a guidance department um, yeah. a good place to, to go to if, if uh, parents are having questions of those sorts? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, on both an individual and, and a school-wide level, I think mm -hmm. for, for a long time the, the profession of school counseling has done a, a pretty nice job of individually, hey, my son's being bullied by so-and-so. And the school, you know, schools are doing a better and better job of addressing those kinds of things. But I think um, a key role of a school counselor across all levels is to, to use a lot of the data that we've talked about today and to kind of step back and say, what are the trends, not just individually, and it is more work and it takes more time, mm -hmm. but school-wide, what are the kids saying, what are they experiencing, and how can we, again, implement maybe small changes that are going to make their educational experience better. Great, great. Thanks to, to you. Um, Craig Hesselheim, um, thoughts about where, where parents or, or teachers might turn? Well, there are a number of books and, uh, uh, you know, uh, a, a very fast way to to find out what's been written and and uh, being advocated out there would be to do a kind of a blind Google search about uh, boys in crisis or boys issues uh, in schools. Uh, I I haven't checked this in advance, but I am sure that Lewiston High School would be happy to share information about their work. Uh, they are only one model, and it is a high school model, but um, they have a, an ongoing panel that includes students and parents and faculty. Um, 
Joanne Dowd, D-O-W-D, is the uh, coordinator of the Aspirations Lab there, and she might be a good person to contact. Too. Great. And your um, organization, Great Schools Partnership, is is on the web. You could, you yep. could get and some well, resources the re- there. The report's a good place to start. Great. Well, we've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronach on a Balmain House Highland Music recording. Thanks again to our guests this morning. Georgia Nigro joined us from Bates College. Uh, Lane Gregory, Executive Director of Boys to Men. She was also with us by phone here in the studio. Craig Kesselheim of the Great Schools Partnership and Troy Wagstaff, Director of Guidance at Hamden Academy. Thanks to those of you who listened and called in with your questions. Thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program and stay tuned for On the Wing. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. Support for Talk of the Towns comes from Coastal Drilling and Blasting Incorporated, serving Downey, Central, and Midcoast, Maine, and located at 328 Bucksport Road, Ellsworth, 1-800-640-3515.